Hello, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers that Radio Times promoted Jonathan Miller's 1986 series Origins, with the front cover identifying him as Mr. Universe. I think some bodybuilders might have wanted a word about that. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that they remember, that nobody else ever seems to, are podcasters Andrew Trowbridge and Lisa Parker. Andrew, Lisa, what are you up to? Where can we find it? Well, we're still churning out around the archives. Yes, not quite as quickly as No, before, we, do, we, but, we seem uh... to be doing it every three months. Yes. That sounds rude, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> In fact, we're doing more guest appearances than anything else, aren't yes. we? So you can find us more often on Vision on Sound and yep. the Shy Life podcast. Yes. And the Cinematic Sausage. Yeah. Search for us all over the internet. I was really looking forward to your list, and you've really, really outdone yourselves <laughs> this time. Particularly with your first choice. I could scarcely believe, even though I've heard this record so many times, when I came back and listened to this, that this actually existed. So what am I talking about? Well, it's this. disco version of Tube the Bells in its guise as the theme from The Exorcist. Lisa, who decided to do it like this and why? Well, this is a Jeff Loves a Big Terror theme. It's so, things like Jaws. It's got the Jaws music on it. It's got the music from the Poseidon Adventure, from Psycho, from The Towering Inferno. And as you say, from The Exorcist which is like a really odd film to sort of pick, I think. This was one of the records that my parents had had in their very eclectic collection, which also included various long players from Mrs Mills, which I never listened to. She didn't do terribly. She didn't. Well, she kind of did in a way. <laughs> but Jeff Love, he's one of these sort of musical arrangers in the 70s that do arrangements of other people's music. His aren't that bad. Some of the other ones I've heard are pretty awful, particularly the different variations on the Doctor Who theme, of which there are many. You start looking him up and he's a really extraordinary person because he was born in 1917 in Todmorden in Yorkshire and he had African-American and Cherokee heritage. So it's not kind of what you expect for this time in this country, you know, in the 50s and the 60s when he was doing a lot of his arrangements of working with a lot of sort of famous people. It's more inclusive than you would have thought. But this particular record is just full of his version of all of these different themes. And I think I probably played this record a lot. I was a very strange child. And I think I probably knew the Jaws theme before I'd even seen the film. Well, that is something I wanted to ask about because on one of your previous appearances, you talked about how terrified you were of the Jaws game. Yes. Now, when the Jaws theme came on, did you, like, hide? <laughs> like I used to do with some children's records we had where they had some frightening songs on, like John Pertry singing I Know an Old Lady. And the obvious reaction is to hide behind the <laughs> chair, you know, so the song can't get you. How did you react to the Jaws theme, given that you were terrified of the toy? I think I quite enjoyed it. I think the only reason I was, as, as I said before, I was terrified of the game is that when the Jaws inevitably snapped together, it hurt. <laughs> But did you play the record whilst playing the game? I have no memory of that, so I might Well, what disturbs me is the arrangement sounds a bit like Jaws meets Zed Car, so I've got this horrible, horrible (laughs) vision like Stratford John saying we're going to need a bigger boat. As I say, it's not the best version I've ever heard of it, but compared to some of the other ones that are out there, not necessarily of these themes, but of just various themes, Jeff Love's ones are pretty good. We've watched his This Is Your Life from 1974, and it's a really odd experience because you get sort of Max Bygraves on there telling terrible jokes, which Max Bygraves always seem to do. You get Beryl Reed turning up sort of almost as the last person on. Did Beryl Reed just appear on everybody's This yeah. Is Your Life? Because well, she she's, pe- yeah, she's on Peter Davison's one <laughs> yeah, as well. She, I think she just knew everybody, didn't she? So and then you get the wonder that is Norrie Paramore, who's another sort of band leader with the worst toupee. I've ever seen in my life. It just sort of perches on the top of his head, doesn't it? It's no attempt at like being convincing no, at all. No, it's no attempt to blend it in. It's just 
sort of sat there glaring at you. Yeah, Nori Paramore is a name I'm very familiar with at the moment because I've recently, as you guys know, published Top of the Box Volume 2, which is a book about every album released by BBC Records and Tapes. Now, a good percentage of them were Nori Paramore doing more of your favourite themes, even more of your favourite themes, even, even more of your favourite... Him and Birdsong were what drove that label and almost drove me insane. And his versions of things generally aren't very good, but Jeff loves are mm. because I had... I've looked into it since. It seems to be an amalgamation of two of his albums because there were loads of these themed albums in the 70s which I'll come back to, but I had one called An Hour of Super Themes, which is basically superhero and sci-fi themes sort of compiled together. There's a great version of Wonder Woman on there with some squeeing electric guitar. There's a brilliant version of Barbarella. Terrible Thunderbirds. Terrible Blake 7 with like a kind of military tattoo in the background. Disco version of the Close Encounters five note thing. Honestly, but I love that album. I think he does these things really well, but it is odd that you did get. There are all these band leaders doing, I think because they didn't really release proper soundtracks in those days, or if they did, were very expensive like the Star Wars one was compared to regular albums. So they did these budget things and it was things like detectives, romance themes. You didn't get things like giant dog movie themes with Digby the biggest dog in the world on it and 11 other famous giant dogs. But what struck me is there was a big thing, particularly if you read Andrew Collins's Where Did It All Go Right? Kids were obsessed with disaster movies in the 70s. And this is like the young Andrew's idea of a disco, I think. It might have been boogieing away in his bedroom to theme for the Iger Sanction. You can't actually buy Jeff Love's big terror themes and the superhero theme in one sort of amalgamated brackets um, remastered remastered from Amazon Music <laughs> doesn't the cover for the sci-fi one have a liberator on the front which has got four prongs on it to uh, avoid copyright yes, I think it has <laughs> yeah. yeah I think an hour of super themes had kind of like generic Tracy brother it didn't look like any <laughs> of them it looked like somebody working in an ice cream van in the 60s <laughs> it's sort of odd I think that's the only one we had and I don't remember any other specific records from my parents collection just Jeff Love and Mrs Mills and I think the only reason I remember Mrs Mills is because she was dressed as a pearly queen <laughs> and it, it's that image of her in that outfit that's stuck in my head she was actually on This Is Your Life wasn't she, she oh that's right she yeah. turns up as well yeah, yeah. playing the piano so. in the strangest manner this, yeah. <laughs> yeah. well what I'm wondering is it's a very it says big terror movie themes you know which Jaws kind of falls under that bracket the towering inferno which is on here does the Poseidon adventure I suppose but otherwise it's a very eclectic mix. I mean, like you indicated, I'm not sure what The Exorcist is doing on here. There's Rollerball, which I would dispute that that was a terror movie as such. Psycho! The Iger Sanction, Three Days of the Condor. Well, the cover is very memorable because the largest image on the cover is Jaws. Yeah, he's bigger than the tearing inferno. Yeah, he's bigger than the building. He's bigger <laughs> than the Poseidon. He's about to swallow the logo from Three Days of the he Condor is. as well. This is something that sadly has been kind of lost now, though. And it's not because, you know, the more easy availability of soundtracks than, you know, really they were in those days. That's how I ended up with things like an hour of super themes because you just couldn't get this stuff otherwise. It's that soundtracks have changed. They're either designed as a soundtrack that can be listened to as a whole or are curated from old records and so on. No room anymore for the way composers used to. What led to albums like this was they would do music that suited scenes with an eye to condensing them all into a main theme that could be released as a single and that just doesn't happen anymore and that's why you haven't got you know I don't know would there be what would the modern equivalent be to big terror movie themes I suppose you'd probably get a sort of instrumental version of My Heart Will Go On from Titanic or something <laughs> it's probably the nearest thing isn't it so I don't know it's odd because you don't get I mean you do get disaster movies these days but I don't think any of them have the kind of themes that you used to get in the sort of 70s the big blockbuster themes and songs that they would release as singles you know both the song from the Poseidon well the song from the Poseidon Adventure was released as a single after the film was released so but yeah it's, it's odd odd time the 70s well the 70s is about to get even odder because you know we mentioned the weird kind of circuitous route where you've originally got Tubi the Bells which then turns into an extracted version of the single which then turns into the soundtrack of The Exorcist which then ends up on here but something even weirder I'm going to use to introduce your next choice because there's just nothing else I could use. <laughs>
okay, you might recognise that as Donna Summer's I Feel Love, but condensed down and mixed very, very badly for the BBC's 1977 Summer of Sport trailer. <laughs> Andrew, why have I put that there? In a word, plug. Or, in three words, and I've got to get this right, Percival Proudfoot Plugsley. Plug of the Bash Street Kids got his own spin-off comic in 1977. It didn't run that long. It ran September 77 to February 79. I've got a disc mm-hmm. with Plug on, yeah. but I can't tell you about the later editions because I've discovered it's suffering from disc rot. So... I can only talk about the early issues at the moment. Well, there's an even bigger mystery than what's in the later issues because my single overriding question about this whole exercise is why plug? Why do a spin-off comic based on plug? And on top of that, why make it sport themed? Well, this is it. I was looking back at these, you know, the few issues I can review and I thought, I don't remember it being this sporty. It's full of sort of football-y things. But there's also the plug sports and social club that you can join. You send off your your money and you get sort of lapel badges and things like that. Sports and Social Club makes it sound like, you know, the sort of places you would go with elder male relatives when you were young in the 70s, had kind of green bays on the walls and people playing backgammon. Yeah, that's what Sports Social Clubs were in those days. It just has that air. I was just thinking of the Wheel Tappers and Shunters Club. (laughs) (laughs) Plug wouldn't last three minutes in there. All the jokes would be about the poor lads here. Actually, we should just feel it. Anyone who doesn't know, Plug was one of the Bass Street kids in the Beano, and he was, quote, the ugly one. And periodically, there'll be a rumour that they're going to make politically correct Bass Street kids and make him look normal. And, you know, the Daily Mail explodes, and Piers Morgan says, Aha, aha, what if I do good looking Frankenstein? Ah, thinks that's funny. And then it doesn't happen because it was never going to happen. But I still can't figure out why anyone thought anyone needed a spin off comic headed by him because there were so many other characters. They could have done a Minnie the Minx comic, a standalone Dennis the Menace one. Even Walter the Softy would have had higher standing. Even Babyface Finlayson. Why plug? There's no explanation anywhere out there for well, it. The weird thing, he's not in it actually that much anyway. He's like on the front cover and he gets a page of his own. You get his little brother, Elvis, who's got a whole page where he looks at different football teams each week. Okay, now this is very unfortunate timing for a character called Elvis, <laughs> September 1977. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes I hadn't, I hadn't worked that one out but yeah most of the other strips have got nothing to do with plug it's the one that I really remembered looking back Manchester United which was the insect football team and there's, there's like this sort of team photo isn't there? And you've got all these insects, which are basically, they're sort of humanoid, aren't they? But they've got like sort of antennae and things like that. They're more sort of ant men than they are ants. Some sort of horrible experiment going on, isn't there? So you've got Sterling Moth, and I thought, well, he doesn't play football for a start. He's a racing driver. (laughs) David Larvey, Brian Greenfly, Nat Lofthouse, and having remembered that name for all of my life, that's mm. the only time I ever got a pointless answer on Pointless about football. Yes. Thanks, Plug. <laughs> Mantis Buchan, Crawling Todd, Francis Flea, Spiderweb, George Beastie. Now, I said to you, has George Best got a hairy face? Because he well, has in he, this. He had a beard. But I think that was after he stopped playing football, right. wasn't it? I don't know the chronology of George Best. Kevin Beetle, Auntie Grey, Mike Summerby, and the referee is Samuel Peeps. Because he peeps on his whistle, on his whistle yeah. if you'll pardon the expression. The puns don't really work just generally across plug. Because one thing I noticed was there was a strip called Luncheon Full. <laughs> oh, yes. And it took me about five minutes to think, what does that actually mean? Obviously, it's meant to be Luncheon Voucher, but it doesn't work. <laughs> and there's also Ava Bernard. Yes, yes. was described as a very strong female athlete. Now, I'll admit, I was worried before I looked that up what she was going to look like. Thankfully, my worst visions didn't come true. <laughs> but the one that really puzzled me was what about a pop group called The Banshees? Oh, yes. Which is interesting because it's clearly, although they themselves aren't really analogous to Susie and the Banshees, it's obviously a nod to them. But at that point, although there were no name, because obviously Susie was on the famous Sex Pistols Bill Grundy interview and so on, they hadn't actually released a single. So either somebody at DC Thompson was unusually on the ball. When I say unusually on the ball with media trends, I mean it involves something post-1938. <laughs> but 
but it seemed like very timely and the whole vibe about this is quite timely as well I mean I don't quite understand where the sport things comes into it but it's clearly chiming with what was going on in the wider world and it seems dangerously modern for a DC <laughs> Thompson comic which maybe is why it didn't last that long there's one that did spring out at me that I remembered as well which was and I'm gonna have to say it the way it's written GNU faces yes I remember GNU faces <laughs> yes. but they've not even spelt GNU correctly they spelt it with two O's <laughs> instead of a U so even that's wrong they were these three GNUs who wanted to be in show business so they'd appear on their equivalent of new faces even the judges uh, plays on the sort of regulars who've got Mickey Musk Tony Scratch Arthur Aardvark and Lionel Bear oh. <laughs> Do you remember Lionel Blair being on New Faces, Lisa, I, I don't or was this really before your time? New Faces. No. no, I remember the. I think it was a revival in the nineties mm. with Nina Mishkoff on being her yeah. usual pleasant self. But yeah, that's the only thing I've ever seen in New Faces. There's also Eddie Daring, which is a pun, obviously, on the commentator Eddie Waring. I think the pun came before the <laughs> see the strip there. There was also Ibagoom. Yes, which that and Manchester United survived when Plug inevitably had the cover message saying, great news for all inside, <laughs> which is what comics always said when they were closing and merging with something else. Emerge with the Beezer, which was always my favourite DC Thompson comics, because it was madder. It was more, I don't want to say hallucinogenic, but it was more surreal. It had stranger ideas for the basis band strips and so on. And those two fitted better in the Beezer than they did in Plug. because yeah, really. Ebar Goom was actually, it's a colour strip. Some of the other ones are sort of fairly shonky black and white. So clearly this was the page that they threw a bit of money at. I think it's the first place I ever heard about tripe, though, because it's very sort of northern cliches, isn't it, Ebar Goom? I'm still struggling with the whole Plug thing, <laughs> because... I I don't even think he's that iconic, really. The note on the Wikipedia entry, A, it was expensive at nine pence. <laughs> I, don't, I don't regard nine pence as... And there's a note here that rumours of the curse of plug. Apparently a number of celebrities featured on the front cover died soon afterwards, notably John Wayne. Are you familiar with the 17th century bills of mortality they used to publish? I just imagine, like, plug three died of plug. I just wonder who these cover stars were because I've actually just been trying to look up while we're talking the covers of plug. All I can see, the first issue had something called a screaming demon yeah. with it, which is kind of a balloon that made a noise. All the other ones just seem to have plug in various scenarios and no sign of any celebrities at all. And also there's the cover of the issue with Deadpool as well, which yeah. doesn't bear any relevance. <laughs> I'm sure he would have loved to make a cameo in plug, but it was a bit early. But yeah. who are these celebrities? Where did they go? Where has this story come from? Hang on. I found yes. one. It's got John Travolta on it, who is still alive. <laughs> the curse of plug is a myth. But you were saying about the free gift. I remember getting a Jazoo free with plug. An orange kazoo. And I'm sure it was from plug issue 19. Here we go. Yes, I've got it. Free in plug, the amazing Jazoo. What were you supposed to play on it? Was there some plug theme that I don't know about <laughs> that Jeff Love forgot to cover? Jeff loves plug themes. <laughs> All I can remember is the taste of that plastic in my mouth because it was so cheap. The moment you put it in your mouth, it would start to disintegrate. Microplastic poisoning. Maybe that's the curse of plug. I don't know. <laughs> okay, well, while you were lamenting the closure of plug in February 1979, you could have started counting down to the broadcast of your next choice, which is a programme that I vaguely remember existing, but I think I probably didn't watch very much of. And I think we'll get some idea why when we come to talk about it. You're stage struck, no doubt about it. You're stage struck, got those butterflies inside. Set your feet a dancing, see the audience smile. They'll admire your style, and all the heartache will have been worthwhile. When lights fade, don't be dismayed. The day will come when you have made the grade. At the swish of the curtain, the audience roars. The applause is yours. And you're a star. At the swish of the curtain, audience roars, the applause is yours, 
and you're a star. Okay, that was the very long theme from The Swish of the Curtain, the BBC's 1980 adaptation of Pamela Brown's 1941 novel, written by Paul Reed, who did the play school theme. So, Lisa, sounds like you have clearer memories of this than I do. I do, I do, yes. I remember, well, I think I remember watching it at the time because obviously it, well, it's not obvious if you haven't seen it, but it's got Sarah Green in, who would go on in a few months' time to be a Blue Peter presenter. And I remember them referencing her being in The Swish of the Curtain. I showed a little clip of it. It's about a group of children who find a theatre, the Blue Door Theatre. They manage to get permission to use it and they perform various plays in it. In the book, which you said was published in 1941, it ends up with them taking part in a competition and winning it and then they get to go to drama school. There are actually four more books after The Swish of the Curtain, all written by Pamela Brown, which are Maddie Alone, which was published in 1945, Golden Pavements in 1947, Blue Door Ventures 1949, and then Maddie Again in 1956. So it's a whole series of books about these various characters and according to there's a sort of quote on the reprint of the cover from Maggie Smith that she you know this made her want to be an actress this the book not the television series I was going to say it's a bit late by then I read the book again and you watch the television series and they are very middle class but this seems to be because it was part of the BBC classic serials series the Sunday classics and a lot of the things they did are very middle class and you sort of look at the range of books for children that are written in the mid part of the 20th century and I don't think it's till Roald Dahl comes along and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory that you get a character who's not middle class you get a sort of working class character because all the books that are out there things like ballet shoes and even stick of the dump to a certain extent because he's gone to save with his grandparents when he finds stig they're all you know terribly middle class and they are i mean the swish of the curtain the families have maids so they may even be a sort of upper class rather than middle class these books are all about these sort of middle class children that get up to various japes and the television series does suffer a little from stage school acting. Because you said, we watched it, mm. and you said the only person that was giving a naturalistic performance was Sarah Green. Yeah, I had a problem with it, in that yeah. there were too many kids on screen at one time, and I couldn't <laughs> sort of distinguish between them. Because <laughs> yeah. it's a Barry Letts production, it we is. should say that. Yeah. That's a really key thing about the fact that I think I probably got about five minutes into this and didn't watch anymore, because it was also repeated in the regular children's BBC schedules the following year. I remember thinking, oh, not that <laughs> But I love the Sunday classics because, as you mentioned, Barry Letts, who most famously was what you would now call really the showrunner of Doctor Who for a large part of the 70s, he produced the Sunday classics with Terence Dix, who worked with him on Doctor Who for a long time. And it was in those days when you only had, you know, a certain amount of Doctor Who a year. And, you know, there were no videos, not really many repeats and so on. The Sunday classics, what the nearest you got to extra Doctor Who because they used the same writers, directors, a lot of the cast members. I remember loving things like Sexton Blake and the Demon Gods. They did The Hand of the Baskervilles with Tom Baker and Sherlock Holmes. There was the terrifying Pinocchio, which we don't talk <laughs> oh, about God. him. But some of them were just a little too goody two-shoes of their own good. And I think this fell into that bracket. Although, weirdly it contrasts with, I did some background reading on the novel. And apparently Pamela Brown, who, it's worth saying, was a key BBC producer very early on in the 40s and 50s. She probably explains why the Switch of the Curtain was adapted by BBC Radio about 12 million times <laughs> between the 40s and the 60s. She was only 14 when she wrote mm. it. And a lot of the original reviews are kind of this young upstart writing about cheeky children answering back to their elders and betters. And you don't really get that impression from it these days. Because yeah, at least one of the parents is very, oh, you shouldn't be doing this. You should yes. go out and get a proper, proper job. job. You yes. know, go up chimneys and things like yeah. that. You know. Yeah. But I mean, I recently reread the book because at the time, I read the tie-in version of it, which is actually an abridged version. They've reprinted them in the sort of late 2000s with an explanation at the start of a lot of the of terms used, so about how many shillings and things you used to get and that sort of thing. Before they were reprinted, it was really hard to get copies of them, so they went for ridiculous amounts on various sites. When you read the books, you do find yourself, although they are terribly middle class, because you're experiencing it from their point of view, 
you're more sympathetic to them and therefore you find the parents more annoying and the dreaded Mrs Potter Smith who's played by Mona Bruce in the television series she's a sort of thorn in their side as well you always get this in these sort of books don't yes. you like the sort of busybody yeah I did call her an interesting old bag at one point <laughs> it doesn't help me in that one of the dads is played by Robert Austin as yeah. well who is of course from the early days of the National Theatre of Brent yeah. I want him to kick the kids off the stage and do some National Theatre of Brent stuff <laughs> <Yeah>. instead <laughs> Yeah, and one of the other dads is David Harris, who's not actually that, you know, he's, he's not doing his full Terry Scott school of acting. School of acting. <laughs> and, uh, he's actually playing it sort of quite straight. And the kids include Lynette is played by Amanda Kirby, mm. who was the lead in quite a few kind of spooky children's TV series around that time, like Echoes of Louisa and the Clifton House Mystery, which is mm. that really weird HTV thing for the late 70s, which kind of partway through turns into a reality show, basically, like a documentary about this haunted house. It's very odd it goes from a drama to basically an episode of a make-believe TV programme or is it even a real TV programme? I can't really remember. She's in The Strange Affair of Adelaide Harris as well. There's Ashley Knight who was Ken in Metal Mickey. Mm. But I was looking into, I wanted to look up who had abridged the novel because unfortunately Google just showed me the cover of the Osborne Book of Ghosts for some reason. But it was Julia Jones and BBC Books did quite often do that with books from the 30s and 40s that they adapted either for children's TV or the Sunday classics because there was a lot to take out of, you know, references to visitors from overseas in peculiar terms, shall we say, and that sort of thing. I don't know whether is that the reason the other books weren't republished or did people just forget about them? From what I've read, I've read the first two and I'm partway through the third book and the second and third books are taking place roughly at the same time but from different members of the group. There's nothing too bad. There's a few little references references but there's nothing too bad that none of the names are considered to be too because obviously they've changed a lot of the names in the Edie Blyton ones because obviously children of today would find the name Fanny far too funny so they've changed that to Franny so yeah there's nothing like that in there so I can't see why there would be an issue it's just maybe they wanted to get it to a certain page count and to get it to that page count they had to <laughs> actually that sounds much bit. more likely for BBC Four. <laughs> I'm just looking at the cast here and, and the actress that plays Vicky is actually actually in the Joan Hickson version of The Body in the Library. So she goes from being this sort of innocent child. Who's the one that always gets the close-up at the end of the episode? That's Amanda Kirby. Yeah, she gets the full Colin Baker close-up at the end of... Yeah, end of episode acting from Amanda Kirby, please. Yeah, (laughs) she's got huge eyes, hasn't she? So it's like, I suppose she's, in that term, she's quite sort of photogenic. But do you identify with these kids for their amateur theatricals? Yes. In that you've done a little bit of... I've done a little bit of amateur dramatics, yeah, when I was 16, after I left school, I decided, my friend and I decided that we would join this local amateur dramatics group, which mostly consisted of people 10 to 20 years older than us. Mm. I quite enjoyed it. I didn't get any huge parts to play because these groups tend to be quite clicky, so they tend to cast amongst the sort of yeah. members that have been there longer. But we did do an outside performance of a show called Joseph Andrews, which is written by the same author that wrote Tom Jones, the film, not the singer obviously where we got upstaged by rabbits because it was in they the, were loose yeah they were wild rabbits and they were in the grounds it was in a grounds for a registry office and the rabbits would hop on while mm. people were acting and get everybody's attention I also rehearsed it was not an old time music like a sort of cabaret kind of thing and we were doing a dance routine to 42nd Street and dancing is not my forte to start with not helped by the fact that in the room next door there were some heavy metal Morris dancers so <laughs> every so every so often you could just hear this hey and they'd all jump up and jump down and it had that sort of sprung floor <laughs> I'm sorry heavy metal Morris dancers I swear dancers. honestly heavy metal Morris dancers yep they actually Actually, I saw them a few years later and I can't remember what the programme is, but there was a children's programme with Craig Charles in. And oh, what's that noise? It would yeah. have been. And he went there and he did something with them. But yeah, I mean, Morris dancers themselves are <laughs> fine, but heavy metal Morris dancers. <laughs> yeah. We have to talk about what was the obsession, particularly in things aimed at children, with these kind of like 40s dance band style theme songs with somebody singing through a megaphone. <laughs> there was this, there was... Do you remember they did? on BBC Two an adaptation of Jane the old wartime comic strip with Glynis Barber as Jane mm-hmm. and Neil Innes did the kind of like oh Jane she's your favourite or whatever it was theme song <laughs> do you remember Lionel Bart did for some reason there's an advertising campaign for Abby National where he wrote a song 
called Abbey Endings that went, give yourself a pinch. Doo-doo. <laughs> Do do something something so yeah it was it was all that I think that's what in a bit of Fry and Laurie when Hugh Laurie does that little girl song where he's doing one of those songs and highlighting how creepy they are I think that's what inspired that but why were people so obsessed with doing that it kind of reminded me of the sort of something like the House of Elliot theme music <laughs> to me and as I said I'm no expert on music but it reminded me of sort of quite twenty ish yeah. kind of well I was thinking of but... Bob Monkhouse oh yeah you rang my yeah fun little series but it does suffer from that sort of BBC thing of stage school children. Mm. It's the world of like sort of croquet hoops and cucumber sandwiches yeah. isn't it? The most pointless sandwich in the world. It's basically just like eating water isn't it? You know? yeah. In the television series I can't really identify with any of the characters because we're saying they're all a bit middle class and they're all a bit sort of probably annoying but in the books my, by far my favourite character is Maddie because she's a little bit naughty and she gets up to sort of little bits of mischief which they never really apart from her smashing the window at the start of the first episode you don't really see but she's terribly naughty in the book she actually runs away in the second book because she's in a film and a teacher won't release her to go to the premiere so she runs away to go to the premiere and hitches a lift in a lorry so she's by far the most fun character in the books but I think kind of the last word on what an anomaly it is is that as I mentioned it was adapted by Julia Jones whose other credits notably include the Sunday Classics adaptation of E. Nesbitt's The Enchanted Castle, which is widely remembered because the ugly wugglies in it terrified everyone. She also, for Children's BBC in the 80s, wrote The Cuckoo Sister, which was covered on here by Juliet Brando, which is full of gobby cockney kid attitude and swearing. And also, there's an ITV series in the late 70s early 80s called Armchair Thriller, which was kind of a weekly, mostly quite sinister drama serial. She wrote Quiet as a Nook. <laughs> now, I'm sure you both know what that is. Oh, For anyone yes. listening who doesn't know, it was a thriller, obviously, about a faceless nun, which basically an entire generation, they don't remember what the programme is. I mean, they should remember Armchair Thriller because the opening titles were a shadow looming across a room that suddenly leapt up and sat in a chair and was like, tee <laughs> time to watch Armchair Thriller. But the only thing they remember is this faceless nun. Now, how do you go from that to literally about 18 months later, the swish of the curtain. It's an odd mix, isn't it? Okay, we're moving on to your next choice now, and I'm not entirely sure you'll have found many characters to identify with in this either. from Dinosaurs, an early 90s series produced by Disney, Jim Henson Productions and Michael Jacobs Productions. More to say about them in a bit. Lisa, who were these dinosaurs? So, these dinosaurs are the Sinclair family. And the Sinclair is apparently an allusion to an American petroleum company which had a dinosaur in its logo. It's basically a sitcom, but with dinosaurs. So it's kind of like Married with Children. Maybe not quite as acerbic as Married with Children. But instead of human beings, it's got various dinosaurs as members of the family and what is odd is that none of the dinosaurs apart from Earl Sinclair who's the father and the baby are the same species so they're all different dinosaurs I do like dinosaurs but I don't know enough about the biology to be able to actually comment on that but yeah so basically you've got the family so you've got say Earl Sinclair who's the father and he's a tree pusher so he basically pushes trees over where they're going to build houses did uh, they have trees when they were dinosaurs there must have been trees <laughs> Otherwise, where would you get oxygen from? Oh, that's true. Then you've got Fran Sinclair, who's, who's the, the mother character, who appears to be an Allosaurus, which is just like, I'm not quite even sure what that is. It's, that's just, it's not a T-Rex, it's though, not is a it? T-Rex. She's got longer arms. Yeah. Somebody described her as a T-Rex. I'm going, no way she's a T-Rex. She's got longer arms. Because there is a T-Rex character in it, Roy Hess, who's Earl's workmate and best friend. And he can't do anything with his arms. Then you've got Robbie Sinclair, who's the son. And he is a... Oh, I can't Thysylophodon, say that. Thysylophodon, apparently. And Charlene Sinclair, who's a Proceratops, which is a kind of sort of like a Triceratops, but slightly different. 
And the baby. And the baby is my favourite character because oh, you don't like the baby, do you? I, I'm scared of the baby. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> the, the, the baby's demonic. And the baby is known for various catchphrases. I'm the baby, gotta love me. Well, I'd argue um, with that point. <laughs> not the mama, which is to say to Earl, why bashing him on the head with a saucepan? And apparently not the mama comes from one of Michael Jacobs' children who would say that to him. And then you've got Fran's mother, Ethel, who is a sort of... She's a wheelchair-banned dinosaur. It's a very progressive world, this world okay. of dinosaurs. And she sort of hits Earl as she goes past because she doesn't like him. We've got Roy Hess, who, as I said, is Earl's best friend and is the Tysander... I can't even say it. Tysander... A T-Rex. I'm going to say it's a T-Rex. And his boss, Bradley P. Richfield, who's a Triceratops, and they're terrified of him. And I go, no, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. Surely the T-Rex would be able to eat the Triceratops. <laughs> Triceratops is huge. It's this sort of huge, bulky... Is he actually on all fours? No, you don't get them on all fours because obviously they're all puppets. Right. And it's very difficult doing a dinosaur that's on all fours. It'd be like a pantomime horse, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So there's one dinosaur that is like herbivore, a kind of sort of Brachiosaurus, and you only ever see her from the neck, her head and neck. You don't see her body. One of Earl's characteristics is that as he's... Because the puppeteers move him across and every so often he sighs and that's basically so the puppeteer can see where they're going otherwise they have to try and memorize where they've got to go because they couldn't see out of the costume it's very much like the early kind of simpsons i was going to say that i think that's why it didn't really that's because the plots are very like early simpsons very heavy-handed satire and a lot of moralizing it doesn't suit the visuals i don't think it were it ran for four series and they used the fact that it was sort of perceived to be a sort of kids program in some ways to sort of look at various subjects like sexual harassment war environmental issues in fact the last episode there's an environmental disaster to a series of events which basically starts with the disappearance of some beetles then this sort of vine growing up too much and then they spray all the plants with exfoliant and then they try and make rain to make the plants grow again and basically cover the world in cloud which produces an ice age and therefore will ultimately kill off all of the dinosaurs and there's a really quite sad scene of, of them talking to the baby saying whatever happens it'll be fine we'll all be together and we'll face it together and you're like oh my god that's really sad because it's like a kids show in a way well apparently the production team had from the very beginning had the very storyline the episode because their thought was everyone's put so much effort into this we're not just being cancelled if it gets cancelled and left up in the air we want to have something to go out on the weird thing was I remember dinosaurs as being because it wasn't shown for that long over here I think they made it to 20 episodes mm. maybe but my memory was it was in late Saturday afternoon early Saturday evening slot in my mind it was before Beverly Hills 90210 but apparently it was Sunday afternoons in that dreadful slot where they normally put things like the monsters today <laughs> Dear. the sort of things where somebody has either legally forced them to show it or made them show it at gunpoint and they're like how can we get a small wonder out of the way that's where dinosaurs was how did it end up there and why did i think it was more high profile than it was because it wasn't even an icv regional thing it was networked at that time i think probably why i watched it i've always liked dinosaurs i do watch it now it's we have a german dvd of it because it was never released in this country which has the unfortunate title of die dinosaurs that gives away the <laughs> yeah, spoilers <laughs> that gives away the um, final episode. okay well i'm wondering whether any of the evident scientific veracity in dinosaurs form the basis of any of the essays in your next choice. Let's just hear from the man himself. Talking with Arthur Clarke. What is this about? What is a squared circle? It's a mathematical term, isn't it? Yes, it's, the, the idea is to make a square equal in area to a, to a given circle. And it cannot be done using just a compass and a ruler, the basic Euclidean construction. There are many ways of doing it with more complicated uh, mathematical tools. But it's been proved, it was proved in the last century, that you, cannot, you can never construct a square equal in area to a given circle just with a compass and a ruler. You can get it as close as you like, but you can never get it exactly the same. Okay, on the Dick Cavett Show in 1972, that was Arthur C. Clarke outlining his highfalutin theories on something or other. Andrew, what were reports on Planet 3 and profiles of the future? Well, Dateline Christmas 1984. I'd probably given up on hope of getting a Mr. Frosty or anything like that by this point. Buy him some books always seemed to be a good thing. So I unwrapped my presents, and amongst them was Arthur C. Clarke's report on 
Planet 3 and Other Speculations. Apparently first published in 1972, but a new edition for 1984. So it's actually quite an up-to-date book at the time. But it's a series of essays written by Arthur C. Clarke in the sort of round about the 1960s, some of which are sort of quite speculative and some of which are a bit sort of harder science. The title is quite a clever joke in that the first chapter is written from the point of view of Martian scientists who basically come to the conclusion that Earth is just too inhospitable a planet to support life because it's full of this dangerous gas called oxygen. The gravity's really high so all the creatures would be like sort of squashed under their own weight and there's this horrible thing called fire that keeps on breaking out so any creatures would be in danger of being burned to death as well. But as you go through it that sort of style of writing sort of disappears and he gets on to things like naming craters of the moon and it's probably not something that anybody thinks about at the moment but every crater on the moon has got a name and they're usually named after ancient scientists. It sort of comes up with the interesting point that at some point we're going to colonise the moon we have to assume that. So are decisions that were made hundreds of years ago going to affect like the property prices on the moon in the 22nd century? You know Tim if you lived on the moon would you prefer to live in the sea of tranquility or the marsh of putridity? There's a chapter also about meteors but apparently up till about the 1800s the French didn't believe in meteors because French scientists refused to believe that stones could fall out of the sky. That was just a stupid notion. And then in 1803 a great share of meteorites landed on Normandy just to prove them wrong. It's this thing that he keeps coming back to that scientists keep on saying that such a thing is impossible and then a few years later they're often proved wrong. But that's how scientific method works. You admit that you're wrong and you accept the truth and you move on. So, yeah, as I went on to be a scientist, this book stayed with me as a good example of how to think about the future. And I don't think we think about the future very much these days. We're so worried about the present that changing things is almost a bit of a problem. This came to me sort of recently because we've had this whole thing about working from home, haven't we? And various people in the government are saying, get back to work, get in the office. And I'd just like to read you a little bit from one of the chapters. This was written in 1969. During the next decade, we will see coming into the home a general purpose communications console with TV screen, camera, microphone, keyboard. Anyone with such a device will be able to be in touch with any other person similarly equipped. Virtually all travel for business will thus become unnecessary. The slogan of the future will be don't commute, communicate. And I think quite a few people working in government maybe should have read that essay at some point in their lives. I think a lot of people in government could do with just reading anything full stop, (laughs) to be honest with you. But you are right about that. But what is really confusing me is, as you say, it was originally published in 1972. There's very little about it out there. There's a bit more about the 1940s reprint which I've got some stuff to say about as well but it looks as though from everything I can tell that the blurb for the 1972 edition mentions the internet which is weird Mm. because that word was not even in scientific usage at that point surely it should have said I don't know cyclades or the catanet or something (laughs) but everything seems to suggest it does actually refer to the internet so was he even that ahead of his time that he thought of the word about two years before they called it? Don't forget the fact that we're able to talk to you tonight is entirely down to Arthur C. Clarke. Because <laughs> it's that thing you used to get at the start of Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World. Writer and inventor of the communication satellite, or as the goodies would say, the digital lawnmower. So Arthur C. Clarke was quite good friends with Patrick Moore. And there's an edition of The Sky at Night, done in 1963, where they're looking forward to the moon landings. And Arthur basically says, well, by 1988, we'll have men on Mars. In some ways, he's right on the button with some stuff and in some other ways we're woefully behind his predictions. That's what I meant to say about the 1984 edition the back cover blurb goes out of its way to try and suggest that it's a satire in places and I know you know you mentioned there is the relatively humorous first chapter which again I've got something to say about but are they trying to cover for the fact that some of it was just absolute hokum by that point that was never going to happen? Well Lisa and I were shall we say troubled by his obsession with having monkey servant. <laughs> 
Because he's got this thing that obviously in the future, sort of automation will replace people doing certain jobs. But he seems quite keen on having animal servants of mm. some sort. He quite likes the idea of having sort of some sort of intelligent horse that could take you into work and back. And it, <laughs> you could just leave it to go for a walk and then it would come back and pick you up. He didn't even duff the class to think of a hoverboard. <laughs> just an intelligent horse. But yeah, or maybe a mini elephant as well. But on the other hand, I said about Anchester United, he does make the interesting point, and I can't remember which book it's in, because I regard the Report on Planet 3 and Profiles of the Future as very much, very similar books. You get this thing about sort of things changing in size, and things are of the size they are for a certain reason. And you know that thing people used to say about if an ant was the size of a man, it could carry a house, or something like that. If an ant was the size of a man, it would collapse under its own weight, because it's legs wouldn't be strong enough so the moment Anchester United ran out onto the pitch they just <laughs> collapse I'm sorry Clark you know Arthur C Clark has proved you wrong I think Arthur C Clark is remembered for not necessarily the right things these days I guess to us it's very much Arthur C Clark's mysterious world isn't it you know full of strange old men who are like mysteriously bombarded with hazelnuts that fall from the sky because the bloke with the hazelnut always amuses me that you know his explanation this old bloke he's walking along and hazelnuts fall on him from the mm. sky and he goes mm. well I think it might have been a vortex sucked them up but where you suck up hazelnuts from in March I don't know and then his friend comes along and says that he was also showered with hazelnuts from the same place wasn't he yes and your theory was it the topic factory <laughs> well Lisa your theory is there's just somebody in a window upstairs throwing hazelnuts at passers yeah, they... there's nothing mysterious about it they've got a load of hazelnuts <laughs> left over from Christmas and they just throw them at random old people yeah so great up in the early 80s I've always felt a bit that I've been sort of short in that you know computers were going to do all the work were they and basically by about the year 2000 nobody would have to work and we could just as you say we could just ride about on our hoverboards and suddenly you get to the year 2000 and realise it's not actually that different to 1984 so okay yeah we do have the internet now but I don't feel there's been sort of major changes in technology that Arthur and his friends were predicting. Notice Boris Johnson said anyone working at home isn't working because they go to the fridge and they hack off a piece of cheese. He didn't say set, they send their monkey butler to hack off a piece of cheese. I think it's interesting. There's a whole lost world in the idea of it being called Report on Planet V because there was that obsession around that point sort of depersonalising the Earth in kind of a disdainful way where you get things like, I suppose the two most prominent examples are this third stone from the sun by the Jimi Hendrix experience which famously, if you play that speed up you can hear Hendrix talking you know in those spaceman voices from those days about how there's this planet three planets away from the sun and we should go and investigate it but there's also have you ever heard Visit to a Sad Planet by Leonard Nimoy? Oh I don't think I've dared do that one no. <laughs> I think it's from Mr Spock's music from space but basically it's like there's a kind of lounge instrumental and he beams down and reports on this planet where everything is loud and noisy. He mentions that I remember Stuart Lee and Richard Herring being obsessed with this on Radio 1 that it was clearly a land of plenty and abundance which you know are the same thing <laughs> at the end the inhabitants tell him it was called the earth but around this point i guess you're still in sort of peak ufo sort of period aren't you there's a whole chapter on ufos and arthur makes a very good point that everybody if you're sort of mildly observant will see a ufo at some point but only because a ufo is something you see and you don't know what it is and there was a report once that a bloke said a ufo was buzzing round his garden and it turned out to be a golf ball that was on fire because a golf ball is full of elastic bands and if you set light hang on that just raises further <laughs> questions that's even more of a mystery where's Arthur C. Clarke when we need him well somebody was burning up a bonfire and a golf ball escaped <laughs> <laughs> and Arthur actually says, try it one night if you want to frighten the neighbours. Set light to a golf ball. And... No, no, anyone listening, don't, don't do that. Try no, it. No, do no. not try that. No. Don't do that. But because they've got a load of elastic bands inside them, which are full of energy. And so they'll buzz about on fire. But I should point out that a lot of these essays were actually written for magazines at the time. So let me go through the list of magazines these essays appeared in. Boy's Life. Don't know what that involves. Cavalier. Fantasy and Science Fiction. Holiday, New 
New York magazine, Reader's Digest, Why Not, Glamour and Playboy. Glamour? Glamour and Playboy. I'm poorly, so even so Arthur, Arthur used to write for porny magazines, yes. Right. I was going to say, some of the early ones that you mentioned sounded a bit like they were aimed towards gentlemen. <laughs> well, yes, indeed. But this thing about UFOs is quite interesting. I don't know whether this is sort of generally known. On the night that he and Kubrick agreed to do 2001, they sort of shook hands on the deal. Then they went outside and saw a really convincing UFO that night. And it turned out to be an Echo 1 satellite going over. And I think an Echo 1 satellite was just basically a balloon. Was Patrick McGowan running past? <laughs> but Kubrick had attempted to ensure 2001 against the discovery of aliens whilst the film was being made, just in case aliens preempted the film. I don't really know where to go with that, which is quite fortunate because I have no idea what we're going to find to say about your last choice. I'm just going to play the clip and be done with it. Grace Brothers Men's Department. Mr. Humphreys, are you free? I'm free. Forward, please. Mind the doors. What? Are you being served, sir? I'm Humphreys and I'm free. Are you being served, sir? What would you like to see? If you'd like some swimming trunks, we've got them plain or spotty. We've also got some see-through that really tan your... Beachwear. Oh, these are gay. There's plenty around the back. And if you'd like a bit of flash, then try a plastic mag. Okay, that's John Inman singing, Are You Being Served, Sir, from the album, Are You Being Served, Sir? Why have you made me listen to this in full? Oh, you've done the whole thing, have you? You're a brave man, aren't you? Lisa, your comment was, it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. There was was one dodgy song on there. The rest of them were okay. That's it. That's my main thing is, it is mainly, pardon me for saying this, it's mainly straight songs. No, not like that. It is mainly straightforward songs with him occasionally saying things over the top that don't quite work out. (laughs) I'd get the tiling done as well. It reminded me of, you know the public information film about bike theft Hmm. where they're quizzing lots of people in the police station, you know, and kids go, I can't remember, I think a geezer was quite tall that took it and then basically a Quentin Crisp man and they say to him what was in the saddlebag and says some personal items I'd rather not say what what the hell was in there? but this is like it's things that do not have any sort of innuendo in them at all but you say you say no you say they don't have any innuendo in them at all that's all it is well I think the cover sort of gives it away doesn't it because it's two John Inmans one dressed in white and the other dressed in blacks the white one sitting on a wicker chair and the other one's holding a Grace Brothers bag, isn't he? There's a lot of novelty albums that stars have done, aren't there? Yeah. But this starts off with Are You Being Served, Sir? I'm Humphreys and I'm Free, which actually ended up being used as the theme music to the Australian version of Are You Being Served, where John Inman goes to Australia and has all the same adventures that he has in the UK. I don't know how that works. It is quite a thing about, quite often in the 70s, you would get the stars of sitcoms doing a song that the sitcoms themselves had themes that even though they didn't have lyrics somebody could have written some for them and yeah you've got an instant hit there the oh you're being served theme imagine John Inman singing that as a single instead you've got this kind of weird halfing character thing it's like you've got Patrick Cargill did the single called Father Dear Father that is not the Father Dear Father theme there's Junk Shop by Harry <laughs> A. Corbett where you know you could easily make up lyrics etc on some theme well as the Doors famously did on Light My Fire but it's just him hollering at you yeah I'll just Shop. Why couldn't they do the actual themes? Well, Lisa, you said it's a bit like sort of an extended good old days performance, yes. isn't it? Yeah. Because on this album, you've got Teddy Bear's Picnic, where there's references to Paddington, yeah. the Cresta Bear. Oh, yes, yeah, that's it. He says, I know it's Frothy Man, but stop waving <laughs> yes. about, which again doesn't work. <laughs> and Jeremy Bear. Now, Jeremy Bear confused me for years. Then there's Captain Ginger, which, given that it's John Inman singing this, has a different connotation mm. to the original version of Captain Ginger, which appears to be about a sort of soldier with ginger whiskers. But that's 
song mm. astonished me by being from about 1911. There's a recording from 1911 of a bloke singing it. Where did they dig this one up from to put on the album? But there's a few things where I'm puzzled as to what they're doing on there. There's My Big Best Shoes, which was originally by Beatrice Redding, who was a big West End star in the early 60s. Somehow, when she sings it, it is just about having big shoes. <laughs> Whereas John Inman is really emphasising the knick and knack and sound that they make. Well, there's the Sun Signs song, which is about astrology, which should annoy me because it's about astrology. But again, the innuendo in that doesn't work. There's so many things you can say about all the star signs. They just somehow don't manage to land any actual jokes. And they even bulk at using the word Uranus. He cuts off before he says Uranus. Doesn't he say something like, ooh, what's that the... What's that planet I can't remember what number planet it is. We should ask Arthur C. Clarke. <laughs> but shall we move on to the elephant in the room? Well, I was just going to mention the other two baffling ones, which are the sailor with the navy blue oh, eyes, yes. which appear to be a man who is very, very strong. <laughs> and also a cover actually of How Do You Do It by Jerry the Pacemakers, which is basically just him sort of sighing, like trilling the lyrics. But yeah, we can't not mention. <laughs> oh, God. I, I can't believe I'm saying this. Come to the supermarket in old Peking, in which he basically tries to insult every race, gender and state of ability. All <laughs> Well, should we start with the back cover? Because there are drawings of John Inman in various guises. But yeah, for come to the supermarket in old Peking, he is in the full gear, isn't he? Shall yes. we say? I will say, even that didn't disturb me quite as much as the drawing of him as a schoolgirl. <laughs> <laughs> but this is where we really went down a Wikipedia and YouTube rabbit hole trying to research this. Mm-hmm. And we must lay the blame at the feet of Cole Porter. Because in 1958, Cole Porter wrote this song for a production of Aladdin, done for the DuPont show of the month. And this survives as a telly recording. Yeah. 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 The whole play exists. Mm-hmm. It no. does. No, it does. I'm sorry. That exists in a madhouse on Castle Street. Does. Yes. There's no logic in this world. Because I will say, I listened to this thinking, maybe it won't be as bad as oh, that. I mean, it, it starts is. with... Duh, 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 yeah. Duh, duh, duh. Oh, no. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, it got in my head, didn't yes, it, Yes, you have been singing it for... And I apologise <laughs> for that, going round the supermarket on a Friday night, and you keep having to poke me in the ribs. Yeah, stop singing it. Stop it, please, <laughs> stop singing it. I will say one thing, though, that in the midst of all this, I think one thing that's really been forgotten is that, I mean, the comedian Ivan Kirby are argues very strongly the rehabilitation of, you know, like John Inman, Larry Grayson and so on, in that at that time they may seem like outrageous stereotypes now, and you know, this is on top of all the other stereotypes he's trading in on this album, but it was very evidently about visibility. You know, that's the stage that gay rights were at, and I do agree with that. I think John Inman's been dealt a bad hand by history. Partly his fault through being involved with ventures like this, but he probably did a lot that isn't really acknowledged to bring the idea of gay rights into... It's like when you look at Monty Python's Flying Circus, people will probably, probably frown at some of the gay archetypes in that now. But obviously Graham Chapman was gay and he was somebody who thought, pardon the expression, but, you know, we have to ram it in their faces. I think that's important. I think we need to remember that. And I always point to the Are You Being Served film, which I'm sure you've both oh, seen. Oh, yes. <laughs> There's an astonishing bit in it where they're all surprised to see Mr. Humphreys talking to some very shapely blonde women and they uh, say, ooh, what are you doing with those ladies? He says, it's something like, oh, Jeremy and Jeff pay for Ken to have the operation. Yeah. To which Miss Brahms says, you don't half know some funny people. And he just replies, it, not in a Mr. Humphreys way, but says, they seem perfectly ordinary yeah. to me. And yeah, that's 1977. There was a progression involved there, which I think has been kind of lost from history. And I think as much as we're cringing at this album, I think we do have to acknowledge that in balance. Well, really. there are things in broadcast, are you being served, which... You couldn't, obviously. Well, Molly sucked and blacked up. <laughs> well, I was, I was going to say there is yeah. a certain Christmas special that will never be shown again, and quite right too. But I think Mr Humphreys was always shown to be a popular character mm. amongst his sort of workmates, and probably the one that was having most fun in his sort of private life, wasn't yes. it? Yes. It swings and roundabouts, I think, with Are You Being Served. But we're fond of it. We are, uh, yes. And, you know, okay. it, it is a show we can re-watch. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether this album 
albums one you'll ever listen to again, Lisa. No, I, f- I find it unlikely. Yeah. And I'd not heard it for probably 25 years. And I come back to the whole thing on YouTube and I'm just going, God, this is stuck in my head. For better or worse, it has. Well, have you heard his other album, I'm Free, which has a song called I'm Free on it, where I mentioned earlier, you say this has got two John Inman's on the cover. This has got three with T-shirts saying, I'm one, I'm two, I'm free. And the main thing I remember about this was a couple of years ago, I saw it at the front of a rack of records in the charity shop. And from the corner of my eye, I saw a very smartly turned out athletic young man who, I don't know how he'd even seen it, but he, it was like a commando operation. He very stealthily sidled in a way that didn't make it look obvious he was moving towards this record, just in case any challenges for the crowd <laughs> emerged. But he managed to get to it very inconspicuously. I just dash for the counter back out so I assume it must be quite rare and you know quite sought after I was so impressed A by what is some kind of presumably reverse musical gaydar and B just the effortlessly efficient way he cornered this I don't know how he knew it was there this item in the charity shop I did think about asking him how to do that just in case there's ever a copy of the BBC Records and Tapes album with the music from the Radio 4 Hobbit on it somewhere (laughs) I found that even funnier than John Inman to be honest it was it's a beautiful thing to witness. So come on then, how would you sidle towards a copy of Big Terror? <laughs> I guess you do you sort of. I don't know. You just do a dash, don't you? Do a quick dash. <laughs> you can sure that you go. <laughs> yes, but you you play it at forty five, so you could yeah. run faster. Run faster, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, when I read on the news that you've been arrested for doing that, it's got nothing to do with me. I did not come up with that idea. Lisa, Andrew, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. 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 Top of the Box Volume 2 by Tim Worthington. The story behind every album released by BBC Records and Tapes, from Play School Play On to Russell Grant's Zodiac Jukebox. Comedy, sound effects, show tunes, folk, singing soap stars, the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, and more albums of birdsong that you ever knew was possible to exist. More details, timworthington.org.